for example, uh, the vaccines, when the pandemic hit, um, um, Saudi Arabia did an amazing job, did uh, an incredible job. Um, if we were not aware of how important data is, how important research is, uh, Saudi Arabia would have not done what it had done. But it was aware. It was a priority. Um, our population is a priority. Uh, numbers are a priority. Data is a priority. So this this was like the end result. It went perfectly. And I think the goal is to have more of this reaction throughout. This is the 966. This is the 966 episode 74. In just a few moments, actually, we will be joined by Dr. Doa Al-Sala, a medical doctor, a physician scientist at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Just so fun to talk with her. She's going back to Saudi soon to start working back in her home country. Just a really fun conversation. And we were unable to ask her any of our personal medical questions on air. Um, like, why does my lower back hurt? Yeah. Um, but uh, just a awesome conversation we thank her so much for her time and richard we will be back to the full format next week this week we will only be doing the yellow segment after the conversation we did just want to jump right into the conversation with doa dr doa who's just great so dr d yeah she's wonderful and she's on to, she's done some impressive things and she's i think she's going to do some impressive things in saudi it's going to be fun to watch and and maybe in the future we'll have her come back and tell us about all the things she's she's done over there yeah, she's got the, as we discussed, the 966 tattoo, which is, un, you cannot remove it, even for the best doctors can't remove it. So we hope to have her back and to see her again after she spent some time over there. So that was uh, great. Uh, Richard, before we get going, before we jump into that conversation, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting it. The numbers are doing very, very well. The new subscribers we got, especially after last week's conversation to with uh, Bechtel Managing Director Jake Mum um, was really nice to see. So welcome to all of our new listeners who are now listening to us for the second time. Um, we appreciate you being here. But yes, hit it, the subscribe it, button if you haven't. It, it never hurts when when Bechtel Corp puts it on their LinkedIn, uh, you know, site and right at the lead are our nine six six with Jacob Mum to their eighty four thousand followers. No, Never no, hurts. no. 850,000 followers. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I missed a zero? Yeah, you missed a zero. <laughs> we saw that. I was like, whoa, that's so cool. They're such a great company. So that was definitely really good to see. Um, and thank you to Jake for joining us. It was such an awesome discussion. Actually, if you have not listened to that and you missed it somehow, go to our YouTube page. We have that full interview there as well as now some segments uh, that he discussed on the Metro and Jubail and some others. So it's just, I mean, he was, he was so good and the conversation was so good. So yeah, we appreciate that very much. And that's the beauty of that YouTube channel is that you can get the whole shebang or you can get bits and pieces of it. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really nice. Yeah. Speaking of New York city, I mean, you don't always eat the whole pizza. Sometimes it's nice to have just a slice and <laughs> Uh, you know, then you're not so full. Um, but we do get a lot of feedback, Richard, from people that listen to the whole episode. And actually, before we yeah. get in, sorry to keep dragging this intro out, but we did get a really good question from a very frequent listener, Mr. Bill Connor, who asked what the difference is between a giga and mega project, since we seem to interchange the words just a little bit. And it's actually quite a confusing topic. Um, and Richard, I know you know the difference. 
Well, uh, you know, because I went down that that rabbit hole, you know, on the gigas. Uh, but at the time, I didn't really uh, distinguish between the giga and megas, which is which is an oversight on my part. But yes, there is a difference. And my understanding is that Giga is uh, 10 billion plus. Mega yes. is Mega is a mere billion plus. So until the world population reaches 10 billion people, we cannot be a Giga podcast with our Giga audience. <laughs> We're going to have to settle for Mega. Um, but yes, uh, great question, Bill. And we, we love, there's so much feedback that comes in, Richard, from YouTube and email and, oh my gosh, from every direction. Um, yeah. But there was a great question from Bill, um, who's often in Riyadh. So thank you, Bill. And a and big hello. fan of ours. And, 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 and an OG, original original gangster fan. Original, the, the original gangster fan, yeah. Um, uh, but the fam has really expanded here, so it's cool. But uh, yeah, just send us um, questions or, I mean, any ideas for topics or introductions to potential guests. We love getting all that stuff. We don't love as much getting some of the um criticism but we will take it we are very thick-skinned richard just be civil to others in the comment section of the youtube page a reminder for that as well okay let's jump right into our conversation now with dr doa alsala joining us today on the 966 is dr doa alsala a medical doctor and physician scientist at the icon school of medicine at mount sinai on the upper east side of manhattan new york city dr doa was born in saudi arabia got her medical degree in bahrain and is now in pursuit of a phd on top of her medical doctor degree at the prestigious mount sinai hospital system we are excited to learn about your journey and what's next dr doa welcome to the 966 Hi, and thank you for having me. Um, reporting from the Upper East Side of Manhattan. <laughs> I am um, Dua Asaleh. Uh, I'm a physician scientist. Um, thank you for introducing me. I'm a physician scientist um, in New York, Icahn School of Medicine, Mount Sinai. Um, I graduated, like you said, from Bahrain. That's where I got my uh, MD or medical degree from. Um, I can tell you more about this as we go. But again, thank you for having me and introducing me. Um, such Our a pleasure. pleasure. We, we're very excited that you're joining us. And is it Dr. D, by the way? Oh, you can call me Dr. D, too. <laughs> <laughs> a friend of ours referred to you as Dr. D. So you, yeah, you know, you're, uh, you're, you're in that pantheon of, of people who just go by, you know, like Pele or <laughs> no, it's funny. Um, the nickname D. Um, when I first moved to New York, was, you know, uh, Doa. It's it's it is actually pronounced Dua. So there is a letter that's not in the English alphabet. So it was a little bit difficult for people to pronounce. They'd call me Doa. And funny thing, Doa or Doa in Arabic means medication. So oh, I'm, like, okay, I'm a doctor. Doctor, doctor. I can I can <laughs> go for that. But then people were like, "We're just gonna call you D." I'm like, "Okay, if that's the I'm very flexible and I like it kind of it sounds cool you know well doc, <laughs> Dr. D has nice alliteration it sounds very yeah good. I agree yeah yeah so it's <laughs> from here on out it's Dr. D um but yeah. we, we are really pleased you're on the show and we want it we want to hear your story and your journey I mean you're very young so there's many many chapters to come and but we want to get sort of get past present and future because what you're going back to in Saudi Arabia is really exciting to hear about too but if you can elaborate a little bit on what you're doing now, mm -hmm. and you do use a specific phrase, which which I love, physician scientists, and that reflects 
both your your you know your multiple degrees, but also what you sort of want to hope to do with those degrees. So can you tell us a little bit, you know, expand a little bit on what you're doing now up at uh, up in New York and at Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai? Right. Um, so I'll go back a little bit to the term um, physician scientist and what it actually means. And then I'll elaborate more on what I'm currently doing. Um, so for those who are listening to us, um, uh, if you're if you go to med school, you graduate with an MD degree, medical degree. Um, usually um, the, the, the track is to go purely into a clinician track, which is doing residency, fellowship and um, having clinical duty. Um, thereafter, right? Specializing in a, certain, in a certain specialty and doing like full-time clinical job, maybe um, plus doing some research, but not specializing in research. And then there's the other path, which is being a scientist. Now, a scientist, you can specialize in preclinical science, um, like the basic sciences um, in medicine. You can specialize in research. You can there are like literally um, unlimited number of um, different sciences that um, undergoes that category, right? So I graduated, when I graduated um, med school, I, like any medical student, had uh, different specialties in mind. Um, you don't really know exactly what you're going to specialize in unless you have both knowledge of how this looks and does it suit you? Um, do you think it be of uh, any benefit in the future. Um, so that's where I like um, being a physician scientist or going into that science track started. Um, and I chose um, clinical research. So it's the clinical uh, part of research and not preclinical. And that is what I'm currently doing right now. Um, so I currently work on uh, big databases, registries, like the statewide registries, their mandatory registries, specifically in the area of um, open heart uh, surgery. So cardiology, open heart um, surgery. I um, look at data um, uh, in regards to outcomes of uh, different surgical procedure for cardiac patients, um, look at outcomes and try to understand uh, and improve the outcomes of these patients who undergo, for example, certain um, procedures like open heart um, surgery, like cabbage. Um, so in short, I, um, uh, my specialty um, is uh, in outcomes and implementation research, uh, as well as clinical trials uh, and the clinical um, research side or science clinical research. When we were chatting beforehand, you mentioned that you were pretty conversant with AI. Are you are you applying some AI to this data? Yes, <laughs> um, yes. Um, so I do a lot of predictive modeling. Uh, and uh, predictive modeling or machine learning is part is like under the umbrella of AI. Um, for example, um, I'd be looking at data uh, and into predicting having an outcome in mind, say, for example, death or hospital length of stay and um, calculating that outcome, uh, predicting that outcome from these data. So this is a, like a very simple um, example of what it is um, to do like uh, machine learning, predictive modeling. So I do that in uh, my area of research as well. Fascinating. Um, we should get to the basics. Where did where were you born in Saudi? I was born in Bahrain, uh, the eastern uh, mm -hmm. part of Saudi Arabia. Have you Which been makes to Saudi? sense. 
<laughs> it, it, it makes sense because one of the reasons what I, I think it's fascinating in your story that you were at the you got your medical degree at the Arabian Gulf University. It's not that's not it, and then you're now you're you're here at a prestigious you know U.S. you know uh, hospital and 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 school of medicine. Uh, that's not a normal path necessarily, and I'm interested on that. So you just went right across the causeway to go to to get your MD. Where'd yeah. you do your Where'd you do your undergraduate work? Um, it was in Bahrain as well. So um, it was in the Arabian Gulf um, University. Um, the program was unique. It was um, problem-based learning where you do undergrad and then you um, take an exam called BSc or Bachelor of Sciences, which is the undergrad um, compared to the U.S. And then once you pass that exam, which is after four years um, of the basic um, medical sciences degree, which is the bachelor, after you pass um, that um, exam, then you move to um, the MD, which is the remaining years, and then you take a big exam called an MD where you get your uh, MD degree. Um, yeah, so it was just across the causeway, but I lived in Bahrain. I lived because it was just exhausting going back and forth, although I live like our home is, is very right. close to Bahrain, but yeah. Are we going to see more of that? And I say that because one of the things we talk about on the 966 on a regular basis is how uh, sort of across the board in Saudi Arabia, but we'll include Bahrain there too, um, universities, academic institutions are really raising their profile. And when you have global indices and metrics and that sort of thing, you see a lot more of these uh, Saudi universities and regional universities being listed and rising in this in the rankings. Um, so for example, Arabian Gulf University, would, would it be, would you anticipate as time goes, we'll see more, you know, students like you, uh, people with degrees like you coming to the States out of these local regional universities? Are they getting better and better? Yes. Um, so I see the way I see it is that, by the way, the Arabian Gulf University was is although it's situated in Bahrain, but it takes different like um, percentage of people from different Gulf regions. So Saudi, my um, class had the most, I think, like 70% of the entire class were Saudi. Um, and um, how I see the future is, like you said, the Saudi universities are right now highly ranked, like among the top universities um, in the world, not just um, the Middle East. How I see it will be is that there will be more collaborative work um, and more exchange programs between Saudi Arabia and different universities um, across the globe and not just like locally in the Middle East. And I, I see it's 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 a good thing. Um, and yes, I do anticipate that uh, this will help like exchanging in the exchange program. Now that you also know the the um, people are more open to coming to Saudi Arabia, hearing more about Saudi Arabia. So um, hearing about universities is also part of hearing about Saudi Arabia. So I think, yes, um, there will be more of this, um, but maybe differently because as for example, in the past, if we had we had a gap at a certain specialty, we'd send people um, to universities where they had this degree or they had the specialties to fill in that gap. Uh, but 
it has changed because now we have qualified people coming back, filling that gap. So the way I see it is that we will have more exchange, collaborative work than actually sending people to fill in a gap because hopefully, well, the way I see it, which is amazing, is that we're filling all the gaps that we necessarily um, need to um, improve and like um, step up like the game and, and the whole education system, which is amazing. Yeah. So take us, bring us from finishing in Bahrain to Manhattan, which is a, oh, wow. a leap. <laughs> take us on that journey. How, okay. you, how, how you got there? What it was like when you first got there? Um, tell us more about that. It feels like yesterday. Um, I moved. Uh, I moved to the city. I moved to the East Coast in late 2010, 2010. Um, It was early twenty eleven. Yeah. Um, so. I finished med school and then I went. So during med school, I did a lot of electives in Scotland um, just because my dad is a petroleum engineer. So he's been traveling like back and forth to different um, regions. And Scotland was one of them. Um, the U.S. also was one of them. So I grew up and I actually um, spent some time in, in Texas and different states as well. Uh, but huh. so when I was in med school, I just thought since my dad was in Scotland. Let me go and like see how the system is. And um, that's where I actually got um, my secondary exposure in research. Um, first being in med school, I had my first exposure to research and then in Scotland. And then so I had an idea that clinical research would be one of the specialties that I am really interested in pursuing later on. So then after graduating, I went, um, I did my internship between Bahrain and also Scotland. Um, and it was uh, primarily also in research, clinical research. It was in both clinical uh, electives and clinical research electives. So I had, I got like more exposure. So that's after finishing all of that, I moved um, to the US. Um, I did my uh, medical license exam um, in New Jersey. And then I had started looking for programs in this area, like the e uh, the East Coast, and um, especially specifically New York, uh, to look for programs that are highly uh, equipped with like um, all the top like research uh, entities. Um, and then Wild Cornell was one of them. Um, so I applied and I got accepted. Um, so I did my uh, Wild Cornell here in New York. Uh, I did my um, uh, fellowship. It was a two year uh, clinical research uh, fellowship program. Uh, and it was my very first, I'd say, intense, because it's, it's a training um, position, um, exposure in research. And that's how uh, the journey of clinical research started in, in Cornell. And now then moving from Cornell, during Cornell, during that Cornell time fellowship, uh, I also um, uh, got master's in clinical research from Icon School of Medicine. That's the bridging between the two. Now, Cornell in Manhattan. Um, so my apartment is in the middle, Cornell, and then Mount Sinai. So it was perfect. I was like, okay. Um, so when I did my master's in uh, Sinai while doing my fellowship in Cornell, uh, I was uh, more exposed to what Sinai has to offer too uh, in terms of clinical research. And that's um, when I joined um, Mount Sinai, specifically Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and then started also uh, my PhD in clinical research. Um, yeah. That's so it. you've been in oh. you're, you've been in New York. You're officially a New Yorker, aren't you? I, I mean, am a New Yorker. You've been I there a, a decade, right? I mean, yes, since I'm 2013. A New <laughs> um, 2011. All right. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm a New Yorker. Yeah, they say if you live here more than 10 years, you're a New Yorker. At first it was two years, and then they said five years, then 10 years. I'm like, that's it. I'm a New Yorker. And if you yeah. can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Anywhere, and- <laughs> basically. Yeah. And so you're you're now um, almost done with a PhD. So Richard, it's actually yes. Dr. Dr. D. Um, that's how my dad dad say too and i think that means we just call you d3 right d3 yeah dq yeah yeah (laughs) yeah um yeah um, mount sinai has like an amazing um phd program um for clinical research um uh, mount sinai is recently um ranked um number one in the smart um uh, hospitals top smart hospitals uh, in New York, and then it's number five uh, globally, actually. So it just it's their their program is amazing. I've learned a lot. I've accomplished a lot. And um, but it, there's a question here, but it bridges sort of what you're doing now and what you're going to do. Right. Can you tell us where you're headed next? And then I want to throw in a question there. Okay, uh, I am headed to Riyab. <laughs> I'm going, yeah, I'm going to Riyab. Uh, I'll be joining KMARC, which is uh, King Abdullah uh, International uh, Research Center uh, in Riyadh, uh, and it's uh, under uh, the national uh, uh, affairs, like health affairs. I'm going to do clinical research, uh, same as I'm doing in Sinai. Um, it's it's. I'm actually excited for it because so uh, KMARC, let's just, I'll, I'll use KMARC for short, um, just kidding, Abdullah, uh, International Research Center. Um, it's one of the leading um, uh, research uh, centers uh, in, in the Middle East and even now uh, expanding uh, with all the um, uh, affiliation and, and um, uh, globally. Um, so what they do is that they have similar departments as we do even in Sinai. So they have clinical trials units, they have um, epidemiology, public health, they have um, artificial intelligence uh, department. So uh, I'm going to be working with them, uh, not um, uh, in like these different uh, departments and see where I can fit and what can I uh, like help to um, improve and accomplish uh, my goals. But uh, pretty much it's similar to what we have uh, here in Sinai, what we have in Cornell, like of what you'd expect a research center to have. Um, so my duties will be pretty much similar, um, of course, with different goals, um, goals that actually align with the population, what we need the most in our region. One of the things, remember when I mentioned collaborative work between Saudi Arabia and um, people here. So when I was, when I was, it was last year, I think, during the pandemic, um, uh, an amazing researcher from Saudi Arabia reached out. They were like working on guidelines for ICU patients, um, uh, management of COVID. And we've actually published a paper. I worked with them, collaborated with like um, uh, tens of researchers uh, from Saudi Arabia. And some of them are actually Saudi, but in different research centers um, in different countries. Um, And we've, all worked together, uh, analyzed data, analyzed um, uh, research, uh, just to come up with guidelines um, and implement it in Saudi Arabia um, for the management of uh, patients in the ICU for COVID. And this is just an example of uh, what clinical research uh, is, what collaborative work means and how it actually affects um, um, people in the country or like uh, patients, for example, that are in need for, this uh, kind of management. Mm-hmm. 
So one of the areas uh, that are uh, flourishing in Saudi Arabia is clinical trials. And it's uh, one of um, the area that I specialize in, designing clinical trials. Uh, for example, um, the, the vaccines for COVID, how did they come about? So they um, uh, manufactured a vaccine and then uh, they wanted to test the vaccine. If you test the vaccine on people, that's a clinical trial, right? You compare it um, between different um, groups and you see if that vaccine works or not. The same is true for medication. The same is true for different um, uh, modalities of treatment. Uh, so I, and, and it's, and clinical research this is one of the highest level of evidence. And nowadays we practice evidence-based uh, uh, medicine or uh, uh, evidence-based uh, uh, science. And it's based on the evidence from science, based on research, based on data, the guidelines, uh, the, the treatment that we get, the medications that we take from the pharmacies. Uh, so for us, um, I think to have the best out of these treatments, we want data coming from people that look like us. So data from uh, Saudi Arabia, from the Middle East. In order for us to do that, we need clinical researchers that can design such uh, uh, research um, studies. And this is where my area come into um, practice, I think, in, in Saudi Arabia. And where, what, what I think uh, I will... Um, I think work hard uh, to um, establish. And I think also the culture of clinical research um, had a lot of uh, missing information um, in the general public. They didn't know a lot of like, what is it? What what does a clinical research mean? Is it like, am I a rat? Are you gonna test something on me? Uh, and it's, I like, if, if I see someone laughing about this, I question them because it's only natural that if you don't understand something, then you will uh, be scared, you will question it, you will be frightened to even participate. But in order for me as a trialist, as a physician, uh, if I want to enroll patients in this uh, clinical trial, for example, that I designed, I want this patient to trust me. I want this patient to understand what a clinical trial is, what is a clinical uh, research. Uh, so I think this is one of the main reasons why I actually want to also go back to Saudi because we lack a lot of physicians who are specialized in clinical trials and specialized in clinical research and not just um, practice it, but also specialized in it. So I think I want to give back to my community. I want to teach them. Um, I want to listen to them. I want to um, just explain in like a very basic uh, terms what it is uh, to, to do a clinical research. What in terms of the national healthcare system in Saudi Arabia, where does this all fit? And are you looking to you know, one of the fascinating things is you're looking at large populations and you're out, you're, you're in, your research and your, your outcomes will have significant policy implications as you go forward, which I'm sure that's what you hope for. Yes. Because you uh, want to make a difference. Um, yes. But how does it all fit together? You know, the, the International Research Center, the national healthcare system, do they come to policy for policy decisions and information to the International Research Center? Uh, yes. Uh, so, well, I don't know if you've heard about the different uh, authorities that they've established um, uh, working towards uh, Vision 2030. So one of the one of them was actually a research development and uh, innovation. And um, and this 
That's ever over since at, I heard. That, that, that's over at Kaust, though. Isn't that going to be housed at Kaust? And so, no, this is a national. So the, it, it the, is. the Vision 2030, they identified different goals, right? So one of the goals is under um, medical and like uh, outcomes for the population. So under that, there is the innovation and research. Uh, and there is a fund for like nationally, not just like for one hospital and not the other hospital or one university and not. So because it's vision is for all of like all nationally um so this is actually when when i first heard this and when i first read um when they when they um actually announced that i got so excited i was like like I, when I, when I chose this specialty, I really didn't, I knew that in the future there is a need because it all started with questions like, um, I was interested, for example, in knowing a person from Saudi Arabia, I, I've lost, um, for example, my aunt to, um, cancer, like over, I think 10, years ago, or when I was in med school, I had like very basic questions, like, um, how, like, what is the percentage, like the proportion, uh, like I hold all these questions, like in our society, but then there were some of the questions that were not, they did not have answer back then. Now it's entirely different. Now you have the fun to answer, um, these basic questions that actually help your society, like help our our population and understanding um, what this population has, uh, what what we need uh, in order to advance like our health, uh, have the best outcomes. Um, so I think having an authority uh, uh, that was um, um, just established for this reason, it's just, it's huge. And I think um, it's, it's, it does not only uh, help one institute versus the other, it's just a national, um, a national uh, cause. Uh, so I think going back to your question, where do I see myself fit into all of this? As uh, first of all, it's very exciting. I'm very excited because it aligns with my goal and it aligns with my specialty. Uh, in order for you to understand um, a population, you need numbers on this population. Um, we all know that data uh, are the fuel right now. Uh, you need good data. Um, and in order for you to get like good data, you have to be um, at the level of the population. So for me as a doctor, uh, I see it more than just going and collecting data, but also understanding um, patients, understanding people that I live uh, with. Um, and also, in order for uh, me to change something, uh, I will have to do research. Um, I will have to dig deep into these data, come up with something, understanding, uh, understand it, and see um, where it can what can I do. Uh, for example, uh, the vaccines when the pandemic hit. Um, um, Saudi Arabia did an amazing job. Did uh, an incredible job. Um, if we were not aware of how important data is, how important research is, uh, Saudi Arabia would have not done what it had done, but it was aware. It was a priority. Uh, our population is a priority. Uh, numbers are a priority. Data is a priority. So this this was like the end result. It went perfectly. And I think the goal is to have more of this reaction throughout my existence or everyone's existence, I think. Um, so what's the timing? Like, when are you going to Riyadh? Are you going to be partially back in New York at all? Or is it is this a full reverse 
brain drain situation america uh, just loses you are you are you gonna stay oh no no no! america will never lose me good um, okay i think all countries i think this is the beauty of working in um like medicine any any other specialty actually not just medicine is that once your country so i'm going back soon hopefully this year um once i'm done with my research um once i go back again going back to camera camera has done a lot of agreements and a lot of uh, collaborative work so i'll always collaborate uh, so i'll uh, be a collaborative uh, researcher with sinai maybe with colonel um so uh, i think th this will happen, like a lot of collaborative work between the two countries, um, um, specifically for me between KMERC and Mount Sinai, since I'm currently in Mount Sinai. Let me, I'm going to do a little plug for the 966, but also because I want to talk about how Saudi Arabia is um, thinking big, but it's it's implementing. And I say that because we actually did a one big thing, one of our segments on the show, a little while back, Lucian, on the on the Research Development and Innovation Authority. It's going to be the, the the head of CACS is going to be one of the organizing things. So, but the point is, so this is a year ago, and we thought it was really interesting because it's, it it what it's trying to do is eliminate redundancies. It's trying to uniform, so we, you don't want a Ramco working on one thing and 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 Kaus working on the same thing, and they're not talking. So it's sort of an organizing, integrating body, which is really fascinating. So so I, that's one thing. That's the idea. It just came into place last year, I think. But then here we are talking with you, and you're really excited about what they're bringing to the table for your reality on the ground. Um, and, and I just think that's an important connection to make because this is sort of, this is exactly what good policy results in. Um, but let's go back to the pandemic and 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 the view of science in general. One of the really impressive things about Saudi Arabia's success in every metric, you know, since Saudi Arabia handled it as well as, you know, a, a, you know, top five country in the world, was that they followed the science. And in your experience and what you're expecting to go back, I mean, you're 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 thinking you're going to be able to pursue it wherever it goes. Right. Yes. Um, so, it's, again, uh, it goes back to, like, why am I doing this? Am I doing this just to get numbers and publish and 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 um convince people if they're not convinced enough you have to be at the same level of your population um and i think it's something that saudi arabia has succeeded um throughout the years like we feel like seriously if you meet any saudi i think what you would get is that we feel we're part of when we say community we really mean community when we feel that this country is home this is how we feel it is and i think uh, it is because of the trust that between both the population and the government uh, and it had helped a lot during covid we saw uh, if there is no trust um it's two parties right if there is no trust then you will face problems into convincing people, for example, uh, go get tested, I'll get the vaccine, oh, uh, this is what the science says, I'm not lying, but it wasn't the case, because trust was there. Um, and I, I it, actually, I was super happy, because I was here, um, I was in the US, uh, I had not seen my family for over two years because of the pandemic, but at the same time, I wasn't very worried about my family um, compared to other people from different um, countries. Um, I was not- Right here. I, I was, huh? Right here in the United States. I mean, yeah, you talk about trust that was missing. Right, yeah, I think 
the inconsistency and the differences also between different people. But I think the majority of us back in Saudi Arabia were um, very um, trusting of the decisions. Uh, and I think number one is because we've had like really good relation um, with with the government and the, the government has like lent us like literally listening ears. And uh, during the pandemic, um, they clearly communicated on a daily basis. Um, and if like my mom, whenever I asked like my parents, how, 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 how did you feel? Uh, they all knew like, oh, right now we're going to hear about this in the news. Right now we got this on our, on our phones, like text messages. Uh, and not only they did not even communicate, not only they communicated um, the numbers on a national level, but city by city, like hospital by hospital, you know, those micro mm -hmm. level, there was like clear, transparent reporting. And I think it helped a lot. And it made me super happy. I feel like um, I will not face this issue. Like someone might not like I don't see me going back doing research and someone coming up to me telling me oh you're lying oh where did you get this data from because to begin with we're very very uh, clear and transparent in, in communicating um, these matters I think so it makes me happy sorry I talked a lot about this but it just brings joy I feel like research has many limitations and many obstacles and I feel number one is not just about the resources or of the, the capacity. It's about the trust because you want to help people. I'm not working with objects. I'm working with people who are just like me. And um, I want to have, I want to be on the same level. I want them to understand me. And I also, I will understand them. I'll try to answer the question. I'm not saying that you have to be hundred percent convinced and say yes, but also I'll I'll give you all my ears and I'll listen to you. I'll see where your fears are and I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there and I'll take your hand and I will help you. I'll help you understand what I do. I'll help you trust in the science that I work in and I bring um, to the society just before bringing to like a hospital or that level. I think that makes me happy. <laughs> Riyadh. Have you ever lived mm -hmm. in Riyadh? No. Nope. I've never, never, um, I've never lived in Riyadh, but every, uh, every year I go back and visit home. I try to visit Riyadh and it's been changed every year I visit. It's, it's different. <laughs> it's different yeah. almost every week now. It's changing so That's quickly. What I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, are you excited? I'm super like... excited. I am super excited. Um, I think my personality helps too because I love I love challenges. I love to like experience new city, experience um uh, explore. I love to explore too. So that will help um um and and to I I'd like to understand the city better than just seeing it on the media or visiting for a day or two. And what's better way in understanding a city than actually living in the city? Um and I've moving to New York was super difficult so um and and uh, so i'm assuming it's, it's gonna be uh, yeah, way you, easier than you got this yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah um are you um, planning to um i guess this is sort of a, a sidebar question but are you planning on bringing any american friends that you've made in your 10 years in new york yes. 10 plus years in new york to visit you in saudi because there's really nothing I'm, like just seeing it like you just said I've actually done that. Uh, oh, sweet. I, yes. Um, uh, every year I go um, and I come back, like whenever I visit it, I come back um, 
to my come back to the hospital come back to my friends I show them pictures um I love to take pictures I love photography so I show them pictures because there are local pictures that you don't see on tv right so I show them this is my city this is our home this is how it looks like um and then one of my friends actually got super excited she was like I'm going with you this was before the pandemic and she's my best friend like we met in Sinai she's also a physician um she was like next year I'm going with you so I really didn't take her seriously I thought uh yeah she just want to see my country but and then pandemic hit she was really sad she was like oh my god we can't go I'm like oh wow yeah I'm sad too so then um last year um she was like when are you going I'm coming with you I'm like are you serious so I brought her with me we got it when no time same day got the visitor visa the tourist visa um to Saudi Arabia you can just do it online which was amazing and I've experienced that with her it was so fast she was like oh my god that's all I'm like yeah that's all you get emailed 15 <laughs> she, minutes later that's it, a huge change instant. <laughs> it's instant it was amazing like you don't go through the hustle or anything um and then she came back to Saudi with me and uh, it was it was great for both of us because she's visiting a country for the first time and I'm also visiting cities with her for the first time that I've never been mm -hmm. um and she loved it she uh loved it she's um looking it's funny she's also looking uh to apply for a job in Saudi Arabia now that Saudi is becoming like a hub you know those big um not just Saudi like if I talk only about Riyadh not even talking about other cities which are amazing just one city as an example it became like one of the hub like in the past you'd hear oh people like someone wants to move to New York to work in New York or Dubai or but now you hear Riyadh 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 so a lot of people have been asking me like where can we apply what can we do like does this company take furnace so my friend is also looking um um to actually work either collaboratively with a research center in Saudi Arabia or move there um for a few years as well um and I'm excited tell, tell us a little bit about your photography because you have lots of pictures out there I love photography yeah I um I feel like I like documenting um, things. Um, so it all started before I moved to New York, actually, when I was in Bahrain. But then when I moved to New York, it was easier. Um, with the iPhone now, you can just like click. So and New York is different. So like you see the street uh, life is, is different to where I used to live. Um, Lighting's I, different. Everything's different. Everything is different. Yeah. So uh, I actually taught myself and then I bought a camera. Um, and funny thing is, is I used to also do photography and clinical research at Cornell. So we used um, we used to take pictures of the specimen and analyze. Um, so it's funny how like now that you mentioned photography, I'm like, oh, tech thing can also work in research. That's how <laughs> my mind uh, works. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'd love to, you know, be able to include some of your images. I have amazing. Um, I visited Al Ula. Oh, uh, sweet! I'm going in two year. weeks. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. You, you love it. It's amazing. Send me some recs if you would. Um, I will. I will. I'll, I'll send you some recs and I'll send you some pictures as well. Awesome. Uh, but you love it. Yeah, that's where. That's one of the cities where I took uh, my friend to, and she loved it. Yeah, and that's yeah. what Anya. Uh, you know, that's some of the pictures I've seen. But yes, if you know, we'll credit you. 
Uh, okay. Not sure, but like, I might charge you, but it's okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, that's you know, credit, totally normal. Royalty is yeah. not enough these days. But... <laughs> no, what are you, um, what are you going to miss most about living in New York? One of my favorite cities ever. What are you going to miss most about living there? Uh, I think the outdoors, like outdoors, uh, mostly because I don't drive here. Um, so I love like just getting on my feet and just going anywhere I want and we're taking the public transport because everything is connected. I feel like it's, it's uh, small, um, especially like Manhattan. Um, that's where I live and I live right next to the river and central park. So like I run a lot, so I'll miss the outdoors, I think. And it's, and it's only, um, natural because different cities have different, um, geography and environment. So I'll miss that. I'll also miss New York bagels. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, I'm not really, I think I'm, I'll miss that. I always say, yes, of course I will miss this because I am an outdoorsy person. Uh, but I think um, when I move to Riyadh, there will be other things that I will get to enjoy that I've not enjoyed here just because they were either not an option or maybe they were there, but I just never tried. Um, yeah. Yeah, but so you'll have to get used to driving a car as well, again. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do drive. So I've actually because I, when I lived in Bahrain, I had my car, so I've been driving ever since. Um, and I drive here a lot on weekends, but just not during the week. Yeah. But and I don't mind. I'm a flexible person, so I love good challenges. I love to challenge myself. So if I feel that. And it's and it's normal. Like if I move back, it's not going to be the same. Yes, uh, even in the U.S., if you move between states, um, it's yeah. it's different. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and New York is entirely different. It's entirely different. So um, I'm excited. I'm I'm very excited to go back and um, maybe host you in Saudi Arabia and get to uh, show you Riyadh. I'll be an expert by then. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Awesome. And we'd love to stay in touch with your journey and how everything's going in the future. We really appreciate the time today, Dr. Doa, Dr. 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 Doa, um, <laughs> medical doctor, physician, scientist, Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Thank you, Dr. Doa. This was so fun. We really enjoyed it. Thank you so much both for having me. This was amazing. Thank you so much. That was our really just, we must say, terrific conversation with the very brilliant Dr. Doa Al-Sala. Again, a reminder, you can get any of these interviews, conversations separately from the larger podcast on our YouTube channel, or you get the whole shebang as an audio podcast, wherever you're getting it. But thank you to Dr. Doa. Safe travels. Congratulations on her second doctorate. Um, yep. Let's get to Yella, Richard. What Yella. do you think? Saudi in a minute. Yella. I can only imagine somebody listening to that when they're driving being like, whoa, <laughs> we, the 966 has caused many traffic accidents with our ASMR. And, and this technique. has been a long, this is, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yellow, yellow, number one, Saudi Arabia's public investment fund maintains sixth spot among world sovereign wealth funds with assets worth $607 billion. Saudi Arabia's public investment fund has maintained the sixth spot in the list of top sovereign wealth funds in the world, according to the Sovereign Wealth Fund Institute. Data suggested that China Investment Corp topped the list at 1.35 trillion in assets, followed by Norway government pension fund Global, 
and Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, Adia, with assets worth $1.13 trillion and $790 billion, respectively. Kuwait Investment Authority ranks fourth with $750 billion, while Singapore's GIC Private Limited is fifth with assets of $690 billion. According to the SWF Institute data, the aggregate assets of the world's sovereign wealth funds hit $10.3 trillion by the end of 2022, up from $10.12 trillion in September 2022. Yeah, I mean, that's this is amazing. The 966 Sovereign Wealth Fund has $10.1 in it right now. Um, <laughs> and uh, we're not on the list, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, just Richard, this is cool because it's sort of officially... The, so- the Sovereign Wealth Fund Institute is the paper of record, I guess, when it comes to manage, you know, keeping track of private equity funds and sovereign wealth funds around the world. It's sort of a paid subscription service if you want access to it. Um, but the PIF's rise is meteoric. I mean, I think in part, and I would love your sort of take on this, I think it's because it's sort of acting, I mean, obviously it's been very active, but it acts more as a private equity fund or like a hedge fund than some of the other sovereign wealth funds, which are slower moving, more conservative in their approaches. According to the PIF website, they've got 71 companies that they've created from scratch, 13 strategic sectors, 500,000 direct and indirect jobs created. And the AUM was, and this is an older figure, but $620 billion as of uh, Q1 2022. Um, The PIF also has, um, many of them do, but the PIF also has a local development component. Um, so they're moving quickly and, you know, as, as this phrase goes, moving quickly and breaking things because they are really trying to be the main driver of Vision 2030's, you know, drive to localize tech and, and knowledge so and jobs. So mm-hmm. impressive. It really is. And uh, yeah, you're right. You know, you're, you're, you just outlined some of their their domestic focus and, you know, internal, what they're trying to do in terms of creating companies and investing internally and generate economic activity within Saudi Arabia. And we've talked about it. It's a unicorn because it's both outwards and inwards. And uh, it's just a really unusual, seems to me, an unusual entity. It all sort of turned around since 2015 when it was refashioned. It was kind of a standard issue Saudi wealth fund investment. Um, in terms of the SWF, just a couple, I'm just, throw out a couple of factoids because I think it's it's appropriate to the, the topic. So the, the PIS foreign exposure, and this is the big difference from 2015, the foreign exposure has surged from 9% of assets in 2017 to about 25% in 2022. So they're really, you know, looking to invest abroad and they become very active as investors. Uh, over that time, and what you might expect when they're taking a more activist approach, uh, the fund has gone from 150 billion to over 600 billion. That's seven years in seven years. Um, another interesting thing, and this is just the last year. So, so in terms of we're talking about the nature of what they're doing. So, typically, traditionally, I gather Singapore's GIC fund is usually the most active, you know, of these top ten and you know, globally tracked. So, you know, it's been the most active since 2018. They invested close to $40 billion last year in 2022. Abu Dhabi Investment Fund, Adia and PIF, Saudi Arabia's investment fund, were right after them. So two and three. And this is for the first time. They've never been that active. I mean, as a, as a point of comparison, Abu Dhabi invested 25, almost $26 billion in 2022, up 140% from 2017. 
from 2021. HIF invested $20.3 billion, up 448% from a year earlier. So, I mean, their, their whole portfolio, their whole approach is changing. I mean, they're actively getting out in international markets and making these investments, um, which is obviously more risky, but obviously it gives you a greater return, which reflects their rapid growth. Um, one more thing that might be interesting is a lot of this investment from PIF in particular is actually going to Europe and the U.S., so they're really ramping up their investments in Western economies. And so in terms of all the GCC funds, their investments in Western economies last year went from, from actually went from 21 billion, 22 billion in 2021 to 51 billion in 2022. So you see, they're just becoming much more aggressive, much more externally oriented and, you know, it's exciting, probably a little little scary in some ways, but it's certainly it's it's creating returns that you know are, have been impressive and reassuring. Yeah, you mentioned it. The PIF's really been around for a long time. Nineteen seventy, it was founded. Imagine yeah. being in the PIF in some Riyadh office in twenty fifteen, and someone comes in and says, "By the way, things are really going to start changing around here. You're not going to believe it." It is. It's also <laughs> funny too because there's a lot of comparisons. So you had the pandemic crash, and you had a lot of these sovereign wealth funds, Gulf sovereign wealth funds that had oil revenue money, and were were and they went out and they took advantage of of the depressed uh, you know market, and you know cherry pick this and that. And it's always interesting because they compare it to 2000, compare, compare it to 2008, the financial crisis of 2008. You know, what did Adia do, Abu Dhabi Investment Authority do in 2008? And what are they doing now? And you can't do that with the PIF because in 2008, they did nothing. They were doing nothing. You know, they were in the conservative investments that barely ever moved every year. So they essentially didn't exist as an investment entity externally in 2008. And then you see how active they are in 2020. It's just everything's happening so fast. Yeah. Any active investor has hits and misses. The PIF's hits have been really amazing. I mean, and I mean, it's almost like they had a crystal ball during the pandemic with some of their investments, you know, into, I mean, Ticketmaster and, and Live Nation, I think they've invested in. Um, I mean, they, they have so many investments now, but, you know, they were ready to go and they deployed capital when they thought the timing was great and they could get some bargain basement prices uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. It just, yeah, I mean, they're, they're really sort of, they're all over the place now. I mean, they, they really are. And, and, and the way that America usually hears of them is through some of their more public facing investments into live golf, into, you know, uh, sports. So, um, you know, they're, they're in sports, they're in entertainment, but they're in tourism. I mean, they're in every single, I mean, they've got a hand in pretty much everything and that's why they are the driver of vision 2013. And that was, that's right to plan from the announcement. Um, they were going to use money to invest, to grow industries from scratch. That's what they're doing now. Yeah. You know, so. Speaking of, yeah, they do have hits. I mean, they've missed <clears throat> that, that 45 billion in SoftBank was not a huge success. You no, know, they did yeah. back in 2017. It was one of the early ones and you can see them learn and grow from these things. Mm -hmm. Unlike um, your, anyone's investment into the 966 crypto coin, um, <laughs> well, which the, it can only go one way. Only go up. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Sorry. I stepped um, on it. <laughs> Yella number two 
Saudi Aramco signs agreements worth $7.2 billion at the IKTVA forum. Saudi Arabian oil company, Saudi Aramco, signed deals valued at $7.2 billion at the seventh edition of the In Kingdom Total Value Add Forum in Tehran on Monday. The Aramco chief told the audience that the IKTVA program achieved 63% local content in 2022, up from 35% in 2015 when it was initially launched. Saudi, en- en- excuse me, Saudi Energy Minister Prince Abdelaziz bin Salman later said he hoped that the local content would reach 85% by 2030. It's a big deal. And in the, in the, I don't know how to pronounce it eventually, you know, Iktiva. Iktiva. I didn't even try. I was like, Iktiva. Oh. No, but the In Kingdom Value Added Forum, and, and it's been a, a flagship thing from Aramco. It's, it's emblematic of what Aramco is to Saudi Arabia. Aramco is, you know, widely considered as the best run, one of the best runs, Anthony's largest. And a lot of times it's tasked with sort of uh, forcing driving change. And this is a big part of it. Uh, and they, I think they're very proud of that, that success. That 35% in 2015 to 63% means that's, that's you know, they've gone to all their suppliers. They've gone to everybody who wants to do business. And you have to do in, you know, source it in kingdom and this sort of thing. It's a huge, huge boost to local business. And I think one of the one of the little data points is since its inception, more than 150 investments have been made within the kingdom. Uh, including products manufactured for the very first time in Saudi Arabia. The company has also established 16 national training centers in 10 Saudi cities covering more than 60 trades. To date, more than 48,000 Saudi nationals have graduated from these centers. So again, here's Saudi Aramco driving change at the past of the government, but it's good change and, you know, leading to local investment, local growth. And, and, and just, it's, it's really been a success story so far. Um, number three, yellow number three, free four-day visa introduced for Saudi Arabia air travelers. Saudi Arabia has introduced a new free transit visa allowing stopover passengers to stay in the kingdom for up to four days. Visitors can apply through the Saudi Airlines and Flynas websites, the Saudi press agency reported. The visa will will be processed immediately. Saudi Arabia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs introduced a visa to boost tourism, part of the Vision 2030 strategy, SPA reported. This is amazing. We use the word amazing a lot. Richard, we have personal experience with the maturity of the visa process in Saudi Arabia. I mean, you'd have to be in the dead center of the Rubal Kali with your head completely buried in the tallest sand dune to not be aware of Saudi Arabia pushing tourism these days. I mean, it's like, I mean, right now, for example, um, this week, Saudi Arabia announced that it would be sponsoring the FIFA World Cup, Visit Saudi Wood. Um, tourism really touches virtually every sector in the kingdom. Um, and and really, really is just one of the very few things that's part of almost all of the subparts of Vision 2030. Um, but yeah, Richard, I mean, from what, just five years ago, um, you know, you basically had to get a uh, either a Hajj or Umrah visa, or you had to get a business visa to get to Saudi Arabia, which was a huge pain. And now it's, you know, from that went, uh, you know, 2018, when they launched the Saudi Duria e Pri, and they they announced, by the way, we have a new website called Visit Saudi. You can come to Saudi and just register online. And one of the more successful, you know, national program launches that I can think of, 
um, not easy to launch a government website that handles tourist visas from a system that was older um, and had no similar, uh, you know, establishment or legacy. Um, and now going from basically you can't come here unless you have a specific business purpose or you're performing the Hajj or Umrah to, hey, if you buy a ticket on Saudia, you can come in for four days and we might even throw a free hotel room in the mix just to get you to come. I mean, that's it. That is that is significant change. I mean, it, any objective person would be like, that's a massive change. It's insane. And, and just to your point, just to affirm what you're saying, um, you know, not that long ago, if we wanted to go, we had to get a sponsor, a vetted sponsor in Saudi Arabia to send us an invitation, documentation written down. In Arabic. Yeah. Take that to the embassy. Um and and you know and and you know hope for hope you can get a multiple entry and re uh, an ex multiple entry and exit visa instead of just a one timer and you know how cool it is to get one for five years wow aren't we you know that was a very small group but you know what relatively um yeah and and you you you'd go oh my goodness this is about to expire I got to go do it all over again um, it was a process and it wasn't friendly and it wasn't welcoming. And it's vastly different from what it is now. And you skipped a few steps there as well. You had to buy the visa using and jazz it, which was a system that did not take U.S. credit cards. Um, and so that was fun to navigate. You also typically sought the help of a travel agency as well along the process. I mean, it you was a huge to, deal. Because the NJAZ was so, so you know, un, not user friendly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. So this but, is a cool. I mean, in your trips, you've been you've been you've been making some regular trips and it's just just like that, right? Yeah, I mean it's yeah, I I got the visa um uh oh geez, this summer. And I mean it's not just the visa, not just the process of getting the visa and um it, it's the arrival as well. You show up and instead of uh, oh, yeah. you know, smaller, oh smaller number of people servicing, a, a you know, huge influx of visitors. Um, you have civilians doing that now and the civilians are friendly. They're welcoming you to Saudi. The process is smooth. I mean, it's way faster than the United States is getting in now, um, unless so, you're global entry. If you were a regular travel to Saudi, regular traveler to Saudi Arabia, and you were coming in to the King Khalid, for mm -hmm. example, uh, and if you weren't met or expedited, expedited by somebody, and maybe you, you know, maybe you were, maybe you weren't. But if you weren't, you know, your dread fear was that your plane would be arriving just after a large plane from Southeast Asia with a lot of expat laborers was showing up. So, so that's still a thing. Endless kind of, line. Yeah. <laughs> you'd, have, you'd have you'd have a GCC, you'd have a Saudi, you know. Uh, customs area where you could walk through a line. You have a GCC, you know, you have a diplomat. Uh, and then you have all the rest. And if you're just, you know, unfortunate enough and, you know, it's a first world problem, you, you can't complain about it, but it is reality. You know, if you happen to come in after one of these, uh, you know, planes had, had arrived, you're there for, you know, an hour, mm -hmm. just waiting for things to get processed or more. But <laughs> so anyway, well, know, it was, was and it, there was yeah. a whole art and, and, you know, there were, you know, there were sort of, you know, you, this is what you would expect if you were traveling to Saudi Arabia. 
Yeah. And yet you have Saudi people being the most hospitable people on the planet or close to it, maybe top five. I don't know how to rank them, but it, it's just kind of overwhelming how hospitable Saudis are. But then you you used to fly in and say, gosh, it's just such a pain to get in here. And yet, you know, the, the opposite reception you receive as soon as you're on the other side of the airport. Now you get in and it's like, welcome to Saudi Arabia. Where are you from? You know, like it's just it's completely different now. This is a this is even more progress than they already made recently, which is significant. Um, it, and it's cool to see, to be honest. Uh, you know, it reminds me, you know, I, we have two of my kids are down south, one in Georgia, one in South Carolina. And, you know, so when we travel south, we ended up. Well, not not to not to, but when we go to South Carolina, we end up on eighty five and ninety five, eighty five. Anybody in the East Coast, so eighty five is just been under construction for I don't know, maybe three, four hundred years, and it's just ridiculous. And what happens is the, you leave the Virginia, you leave the North Carolina, and you go into South Carolina, and almost immediately the road is in bad shape. You know, it's pockmarked, but it's just it's such a bad look. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of a, a state, just PR. Same thing with Saudi. You know, back back in the day, you'd come in and maybe, like I said, if you didn't have an expediter, maybe you're behind this. But it, it wasn't a friendly process. It, and and by the way, they were all, you know, everyone in customs was a male, most of them disinterested, most of them having to deal with, a you know, a, you know, a hundred, hundreds of people every day. They're really not interested in, in congeniality. You go now significant percentage of women the whole thing is streamlined mm-hmm. um it's just a whole different experience and so you're you know the front door is much more welcoming and like you say it's much more consistent with what the reality is when you're in country which is people that are very friendly and welcoming mm-hmm. and it's interesting too because it's like they even have those little buttons that you see in the u.s all the time that have the smiley faces or the frown faces like how was your experience to even care about that is a significant change um yeah, in the kingdom and, you know um and, and you know those those things always amaze me because it's like negative reviews online you know like people write way more negative reviews than they do positive reviews because they're just if they're positive they're just happy and they move on if they're negative they're upset and they want to be heard from so just little things like that but yeah i mean richard your ticket is your visa is would have sounded completely like yeah. you know this has got to be 50 years Base from age, now yeah, yeah exactly. exactly so yeah just amazing stuff um yella number four the heart of arabia explorers complete a mammoth 1300 kilometer trek across saudi arabia a team of explorers finished their four-week 1300 kilometer trek across saudi arabia on monday uh listeners and viewers of the 966 will know them pretty well the Heart of Arabia expedition set off from Alucair on the East Coast in November and traveled by foot and camel with vehicles in support to Jeddah on the Red Sea, including a break in Riyadh in December. The route took them across the vast deserts of Saudi Arabia with hot days and bitterly cold nights and across lava fields, muddy valleys and steep rock faces. Quote, it's been just brilliant and utterly wonderful experience. We feel so grateful to have had such amazing support, said the expedition's leader. Oman-based British explorer Mark Evans. Um, yeah, uh, Richard, this was the one 966 episode that I could not take part in because I was deathly sick upon returning from Saudi Arabia the week before. And it was so cool to listen to that as a listener. I mean, it was just such a great conversation with Reem Philby. Um, yeah. 
you're too honest. I don't even remember that. I mean, I don't remember you not. I mean, because we've done so many and we're always in here together. So yeah. that's funny. If you hadn't mentioned that, nobody would have known. But yes, that was a, that was a black day. You felt awful. Oh, my um, gosh. <laughs> but, you know, it is. It is <laughs> you've been so, are, we, are we taking you back into a dark place? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's some flashbacks here. <laughs> some some episodes you remember <laughs> because you're so sick. But um, that was a good one. Yeah. And um, just really a cool conversation and really a cool mission. I mean, this is a great story. Well, ever ahead of the curve, 966 had, had Alan Morrissey and Reem Philby on, and it was a fascinating discussion, and it's a really worthwhile uh, project. And uh, just just if you want to check it out, it's it's heartofarabiaexpedition.com, all one word, Heart of Arabia Expedition. Um, and the expedition is also raising funds to launch the Philby Arabia Fund, which is in collaboration with the Saudi British Society, and it aims to support further explanation, exploration in the kingdom. We've already agreed with uh, Alan and Reem and maybe Mark Evans, who's uh, sort of the, the ultimate coordinator and expedition leader, to come back on to 966 and talk about their experience because it just looked amazing. And and what's fun to see is they anticipated it would be pretty spectacular and pretty awe-inspiring. It sounds as if it met and surpassed all their expectations. It's just a really uh, meaningful and I think it's a trip they'll remember all their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just really cool. I do not have it in me to do something like that. Um, so that is, it's very admirable what they've done. It will be so cool to hear about their experiences. I imagine it being life-changing. Um, just really, really cool. Um, good for them. Good on them. And we, we are excited to talk with them and, again. And when we have them back, you'll, you'll be, you'll, we'll make sure that you know, you're on the show because again, like I said, I can't, you know, I don't even remember it. That's, I guess that's the way it works when you, you know, when, when of 74 we've done, you've been, you know, you've been in the 73 out of 74. Is not you, bad. you don't even mention the the one missed. Oh my <laughs> gosh, though. It was, that was, I, I was transferring back from Riyadh through Frankfurt in Germany and then back to DC. And I almost did not make the connection in Frankfurt. I almost went to the hospital cause I was just, I mean, so. nearly dead. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, that, and then the recovery took so long. So yeah, I mean, I'm here though. It didn't beat me. I'm only stronger now. Um, uh, but yeah, that's yeah. Some flashbacks there. <laughs> uh, yellow number five. Uh, visit Saudi to sponsor FIFA World, World Women's World Cup this summer. Uh, visit Saudi. The Gulf Nations Tourist Board is set to be unveiled as a sponsor of this summer's FIFA Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. FIFA announced in December 2021 that Visa would be its first quote global women's football partner, unquote, and Australia's Commonwealth Bank, ComBank, had already been named as an official supporter of the tournament. As well as including 32 teams and taking place in two countries for the first time, the World Cup will also have a new commercial strategy as world football's governing body attempts to capitalize on growing interest in the women's game. Well, I mean, this is this has and will draw some criticism because Saudi Arabia is now reforming the rights of women in its country. But, you know, it's starting from a place where this would not be really that that feasible <laughs> um, for, for a, a commercial partnership. Um, but I think we've heard from a lot of women, Richard, on this podcast, off this podcast, Saudi women that can personally attest to the progress of women's rights in the country. And I understand why some might be upset about this 
I also maybe don't agree with it. Um, but I think this is cool. And I think that Saudi Arabia, we just talked about it as a tourism destination. I think they want to get the word out and say, hey, this is a new tourism uh, destination. They're, they're going to benefit a little bit from some of these headlines that are going to be generated by this. Um, I don't know. Pretty cool. I I love this. I mean, so you've got, so so this is Visit Saudi is going to be, you know, in the international brands like Adidas, Coca-Cola, and the aforementioned Visa. 32-team tournament, women's tournament. FIFA, obviously, is a big deal. I think this is like the 12th FIFA women's uh, championship ever. Um, the, the thing I really like, one of the, one of the, I think one of the, and I, I digress here, but one of the most valuable things about Vision 2030, and obviously it's, it, it was uh, implemented and, and it launched for economic reasons, I think as we've talked about many, many times on this show, um, Saudi Arabia has used economic imperative for social change. So things like, all right, if we want to, we want to reform or refashion our economy, we really can't do it if if fifty percent of the population can't work equitably. So that's women. So you have to give them better opportunities, which means, of course, they have to have more control over their households, um, which they get more rights in terms of their domestic situation. Which means, of course, by the way, they have to be able to drive to get to the get to work. Um, so, you know, the economic, economic imperative has all sorts of um, social knock-on effects, many of them very positive, most of them very positive. <clears throat> so Saudi Arabia is going about its business. But <clears throat> the, the point I'm saying is Vision 2030 is more than just economy. It's a mindset that I think is overtaken and is adopted and has been enthusiastically adopted by almost every Saudi, the vast majority of Saudis. Some people still, you know, resist this, this change, but it's how they now see themselves. And, you know, you know, that identity has overtaken whatever concerns or, or, or insecurity they might have about what the world thinks of them. And the, the my point is this is, is when, when, Visit Saudi goes out and becomes a major sponsor of FIFA. They know, they're perfectly aware that it's going to generate all sorts of criticism. People are outraged. They're upset. You know, they're appalled. You know, how can Saudi Arabia be doing this when they, you know, you, women's rights aren't the same as they are in the West? Uh, you know, it's, it's it, human rights, religious intolerance, any number of things. You know, people see Saudi, some people see Saudi Arabia through one particular perspective. And the thing I like about this, and this is the point I'm getting to, is Saudi Arabia has gotten to a point in all these international events, all these international sponsorships, all these things where they're going out and investing in Newcastle or, or live or anything else, where they don't care. And it's not that they don't care. They're saying, we're not going to be defined this way. We're not, you're, we're not going to allow you to, to, to prevent us from pushing our agenda and our future and our economic well-being because you're upset with us. And I think that's a really important mindset. And it's something I, I can still recall when, when our friends would come to Saudi Arabia over the decades, and, and especially in post 9-11, is they're always on the back foot defense of, uh, you know, 9-11 or, or terrorism funding, real issues, um, or something else, women's rights, human rights, religious intolerance, but they always on their back foot. 
sort of being defensive and we'll 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 try and be responsive to your concerns. And I would say, look, try not to be defensive. You have a lot of things to talk about and that's what you want to focus on, the positive. 2030 has wrapped all that up, made it a positive thing, adopted by the vast majority of the population. It's changed their psyche. It's changed how they look at themselves. It's changed how they look at their place in the world. And they don't, you know, they don't have a lot of time for the, the criticism that people uh, direct at them on these things that they're aware of, but they're trying to move past. And and maybe they're not getting 100% right, but they're getting a lot of other things right. And that's what we want to focus on. So that's a huge discursion on FIFA, you know, World Cup, Women's World Cup endorsements and, and you know, advertising and branding. But again, I just love how they're going out and saying, look, criticize us. This is, you know, we are clearly into supporting women's football. Look at what we've done domestically. We're trying to get, you know, we just had our first international. We're trying to get a FIFA rating. We're, we've got new leagues for women. We're building the sport domestically. This is a natural follow-on to that. Criticize us all you want. We're going to do it. <laughs> Yellow number six, canoe, go EV is bringing its EVs to Saudi Arabia with a new exclusive distributor partnership. GoEV is making good on its promise to bring EVs to everyone with a new distributor partnership that will expand its network to Saudi Arabia. The young EV maker has had its fair share of ups and downs since its foundation in 2017. Canoe was started by two former Faraday Future FFIE employees and has been one of the most closely watched electric vehicle makers after going public on the NASDAQ exchange in 2020 under the ticker GoEV. Oh, there you go. I just got to read the whole thing, and there it is, GoEV. Okay, so that's their ticker. <laughs> um, interesting. Have you seen one of these? No, I haven't. Um, it's kind of cool. I haven't seen it. it. What I does mean, it look I'm like? Just, I'm sorry, pictures of it. It's, it's very... Uh, they, they actually uh, market themselves as a loft on wheels. It's um, a ground up refashion of, you know, uh, you know, everything's functional, everything's different. So it ends up being pod like and they have very different various models of it, expedition, luxury, this sort of thing. I think it starts about 40,000. Um, but uh, I say that because it's really an interesting lineup that Saudi Arabia is sort of getting. So you've got Lucid, obviously, which has its own. Uh, proprietary, certainly battery type, but it's a, it's a standard sedan. It's a beautifully well-designed stand, the sedan. So it's, you know, classic automobile, recognizable automobile, but an EV. Then you've got uh, Sear, which is a joint venture with Foxconn. And that's really, a lot of that is batteries and electrical and that sort of thing. So we don't know what that's going to look like. That's true joint venture with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Hyundai came on. And by the way, Lucid is right now, it's just an assembly only. Eventually, they want to be in a production and manufacturing, but, you know, it's assembly only. Hyundai, same thing. You know, they just did a memorandum with him, them to do a, you know, completely knockdown vehicles, both internal combustion engine and EV. And now you've got Canoe, clearly EV. And of the, of the, of the four, you know, Canoe is really a unique vehicle. And... It, it, it's it, you know it, you could see it being utilized in some some capacity especially in transport fleets and that sort of thing because it's, it's kind of like a, they have, it's called a multi-purpose platform but it's kind of like they can do it in delivery vans you know lifestyle vans that sort of thing um but kind of cool and again they you know they're just they're just 
you know, really, really going hard into the, into the automotive uh, sector and building things. And the other interesting thing is Canoe is doing it with Oleon and Oleon tremendous experience with, you know, uh, marketing and relationships. I mean, they've, uh, I mean that the Oleon, you know, sales service people are going to work with Canoe has been around since 47, you know, has dealt with SUVs, sedans, pickups, everything for decades upon decades. So it, it, it's a really promising kind of thing. I can't imagine an unsexier. Uh, Did you get a picture? I, I'm looking at it right now. It is like the least cool looking car I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Um, showing up for a first date and you show up in one of these things. Um, it looks like a, a eggplant. Um, it looks like a, uh, <laughs> on four an wheels. egg. Yeah. I mean, it, on four wheels, there's a box version of it. Um, but it also it's, feeling really bad for any people who bought the IPO of the stock at 20 bucks a share because it is now down to $1 a share, which means maybe now is a good time to buy. This is not a, a program that provides investment advice, but I know a low value when I see one. Um, but this is cool. All the jokes aside, this is cool. Yeah, no, and, and they got a, they got a billion dollars and they have 200, you know, invested in a billion dollars and have 250 patents, you know, and they, they had a lot of, you know, mojo, um, and they're, you know, they're running out of cash. Uh, I guess they lost 125 million in the first quarter of 2022. So yeah, this may be another buy low. You know, it's a, it's another Saudi Arabia's eyes looking for opportunities. And if Canoe, you know, thinks they can have a lifeline coming to Saudi Arabia doing EVs, and that's more to that sector for Saudi Arabia. But yeah. I do think it's interesting because it's, it's like, it's it, unlike Lucid or Sear, which is not, doesn't have a, you know, a vehicle that you can see attached to it or Hyundai, which is you know, based on a, on an existing platform, all very cool. Canoe is kind of like a ground up reimagining of an electric vehicle. Yeah. I mean, I could be all about this, Richard. If, if like when we get to driverless, like full driverless, I'm not going to want to sit in a normal car. I'm going to want like a moving trailer essentially where I can move around and maybe have some chairs facing different ways. Cause you're going to be sort of sitting there not doing anything. So you're going to, you're going to want the car to be kind of reimagined. Um, 100%. If my family gets any bigger, this is going to start looking like a viable car. Well, but it's also um, interesting. And this is what, you know, we're, we're dads and, you know, you know, we have, so we have a family and I'm looking at the interior. I'm going, well, oh, this is really cool. And look at all that open seating and stuff. But I'm going, where's the storage space? You know, where, there's no trunk to speak of. What do you do? Just pile all your, all your kid crap and everything else in that open area right in the middle. Do you know what I mean? Because I think that the, 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 uh, the, um, Electrical, the the battery and everything is up up front, but you know I'm going. Where do you store stuff? Yeah. I mean, you can you have room for the kids. You have room for you know two up front, three in the back, and nice big open space like you say. Pretty cool in a driverless vehicle, but you know, what about you do all the crap that you have to move around? Yeah, I mean aesthetically, I personally like older cars. Um, so, but I mean, you know, not in terms of performance or anything. And so I'm looking at this thing and. Yeah, the truck looks okay, and uh, you know, I could, this just seems more like a people mover kind of van, like you it have, is. you yeah. know. And so, um, <laughs> Richard, great episode today. Thank you so much to Doctor Doctor Doa Al Salah, who will soon Dr. be a double doctor. Uh, with great conversation with her. We will be back next week with a full episode. Hopefully, my voice comes back a little bit. It's been a long day already, and I'm um, <laughs> going to get longer. But Richard, this is a great, great episode seventy four. Thank you so much. 